Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Barton Cane, revolutionizing gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane with precision, consistency, and love since 2012. Leave the cane processing to them. Free up time to practice, take a romantic dinner cruise, or cuddle on the couch with your cat on a rainy day, and listen to the Double Read Dish podcast. Enter coupon code Double Read Dish Rocks My World for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. Visit www.bartonkane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. We're back. Jackie! We actually are looking at each other's faces right now, which we don't usually do when we dish. It's weird. When we dish, we usually only have audio. And so this feels weirdly intimate, like kissing with your eyes open or something. Oh! (laughs) How have you been lately? I've been busy. We're finally now gearing up for the move. A a past time you asked how moving was going and I said, oh, I'm avoiding that until the last possible minute that I have to think about it. And now is is the time. Side note, actually, before we get into hearing about my moving shenanigans, now that it it comes to mind, I think that time I'm talking about is our dish about um, travel, which we recorded previously for an episode a couple of weeks ago. And then given everything that's happened in the United States, uh, we thought it was just a little tone deaf to put on that episode. And so I'm going to practice some self-care, move-oriented self-care. And uh, we kept that dish in reserve and I'm gonna put it on the next episode because we will be like cross-country moving when the next episode comes out. <laughs> but. Yeah, so now we've got, I'm actually elated to be dishing with you right now because there have been showings upon showings of my apartment that I'm living in and I'm not getting 24 hours notice and (laughs) um, that's fun. (laughs) That sounds really not intrusive. It sounds relaxing. It sounds like (laughs) just the ideal environment for an introvert to thrive. Yeah, exactly. And well, and, you know, with with the pandemic going on, and because of Missouri's policies right Mm. now, you can't like mandate people wear masks. And it's just kind of like a stressful, but Mm -hmm. um, we've been selling a lot of stuff. We're trying to see how little we can bring with us going across the country. And uh, I'm not about trying to just throw stuff away and fill up the landfills. They've already got enough stuff. And so we, let me tell you, if you have something that you're like, I should throw this away, sell it. Like stuff that Chris was like, this is broken. No one is going to buy this. Like we had this old Ikea dresser that like all the bottoms had fallen out of and everything. And I was like, yes, it will. Like 
people will buy this, call it salvage, tell them that it's busted and it, you know, is don't overcharge. It, it, we had multiple people asking to buy that broken patio. Wow. One person's trash is another's treasure. And, uh, so we're also selling stuff nonstop and it just, uh, Oh, it's crazy. That's a lot. That's a lot. It is. Yeah. And I haven't moved in five years. And this is a cross country four day move with musical instruments. Chris is a percussionist. So he has everything under the sun, including a marimba. And we don't want anything to get damaged. And, you know, things are very valuable. Sure. Um, and I have my bassoon and we'll have the dog and we're driving. And <laughs> it's just like, oh my gosh. I'm you sound so relaxed. <laughs> You've told me before that you really enjoy road trips with Buddy. I do enjoy road trips with Buddy. And there's a podcast that I love that I have been specifically storing episodes of so that I'm like enjoying yes. my time in the car and looking forward to that and have something in reserve that I'm super excited to consume. So I'm hoping that will also help pass the time. Is it Housewives related? It is not. It's true crime related. Ah, fantastic. I have also been doing a serious podcast binge, including true crime. So that's cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, over here, things have been pretty calm, except for, you know, the puppy. We're on puppy schedule, and she is she has a lot of personality jackie you told me a hound is a noun and a verb yep. and she <laughs> she is one ornery little girl that one well tell our listeners about ruby's um snack that she recently indulged in ruby and i were both taking a nap i was on the living room couch and Ruby was on the floor fast asleep. I thought we were just having a friendly family nap. And then when I wake up, Becky says, oh, by the way, your glasses are in the other room. I'm afraid to look at them. And Ruby had chewed on the arm and bent the earpiece the wrong way. So <laughs> I am wearing glasses. With one earpiece that is now go like directionally upwards instead of going around my ear. Uh, and the plastic is a lovely chewed texture, nice and sharp. So I've covered it with uh, some moleskin that's supposed to go on your pinchy shoes. So that's fun. But, you know, we're, we're, we're working on it. It's a work in progress. Maybe you'll set some fashion trends. Yeah, that's right. One earpiece down, one earpiece up. Yeah. <laughs> Ruby! <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's actually been really cool lately because uh, Meg Quigley has been offering a summer panel series mm -hmm. on um, underrepresented groups in specifically bassooning but I have I've attended both of them so far and I've gained a lot out of them and actually I was so proud 
Yes. Well, we're recording this on a Friday, but yesterday you moderated it and I was like live texting you the whole time. Like, girl, you look so great. That was such a great question. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope I wasn't being too distracting, but I was just so proud of my friend. Well, thank you. It was, it's been fun. It's been uh, super cool to work on actually both of those panels, Leah Uribe and I collaborated on in the just kind of logistical planning of. So that was like a a labor of love for these past, uh, I guess the past month, the summer series is really topics that are related to the mission. Um, So inclusion and celebrating diversity and creating space for people is definitely part of that. It'll go on to include like composer sessions and audience Mm, engagement and other things um, MQVC related. So it won't always be um, the topics that we've seen these first two weeks, but obviously these topics the first two weeks are very near and dear to my heart and to get to collaborate with Leah on them are uh, was really special and I was trying to keep my cool around Monica Ellis and oh like, my god it's so hard to keep my co- I uh, I'm not even a bassoonist and it's hard for me to keep my cool around Monica Ellis know. you know what was so cool though like I was talking to Becky about it last night I was kind of debriefing with her about the session and I was reflecting on how amazing it was to listen to so many accomplished, amazing female bassoonists, bassoonists of color, who said to Monica, you were, like in your example, the Monica was the first woman of color that you ever saw hold a bassoon. Mm-hmm. And to hear other people say Monica Ellis is one of my greatest inspirations. And she, when I saw her play with Imani Wins, it flipped my world upside down. And I was just thinking, what a gratifying career to mm-hmm. have had. Like, what must it feel like to hear, you know, you were my greatest inspiration. I didn't know it was possible until I saw you do it. That has got to be like the most incredible experience. Yeah. Yeah, when she joined the Zoom chat, I was like, Jackie, be cool. <laughs> well, and if anyone's listening to this, being like, okay, so have her on the podcast already. We have been working on it, and it is in We're the working work, on it. it is forthcoming. And uh, yes, you will get to hear us embarrass ourselves in her presence very, very soon. We're so. going to try to be cool, but it's like impossible. So yeah, all of that is coming. It's coming. Well, this dish wasn't very like double readish, but you know, like... It, <laughs> What do you want from it? It's summer. It's the middle of a pandemic. No one's playing. No one's teaching. We're all just chilling at home. I don't know what you've been doing, but I've been making reads every single day and I've been hating 99% of those reads. So that's my thing lately is like, I'm just like, oh, I need to rethink how I approach everything. Ah, It's giving me ideas, but it's very exhausting. Yes. I've been making reads every day. Yes, you're <laughs> Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Read community for 70 years. 
Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground and choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessory needs, Nielsen is ready to help you. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians from around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of experience among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. We are so happy to welcome Whitney Crockett to the podcast, Principal Bassoon of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you start by telling us how you came to play the bassoon in the first place? I have a couple of recollections. One one is uh, when I was, I want to say, maybe nine or ten. My parents were subscribers to the, uh, at the time, Miami had a Miami Philharmonic before the various incarnations of that all went down the tubes and I remember being fascinated by the sound of this instrument that I didn't I mean I didn't know anything we didn't know we were in a particularly musical family church choir and that kind of thing but uh, it's a family of lawyers so we didn't really have um, my parents were subscribers to the Philharmonic and, the, and they brought me and uh, I thought there's just a magical sound and I knew it was bassoon and I remember looking at the oboe and the flute and the clarinet and hearing all the solos and thinking how boring that was to be so obvious and how the bassoon magically came in and out of the texture, you know, in this, in this uh, very beguiling way. Of course, at the time, um, one of my most important teachers, Luciano Magnanini, was playing principal bassoon, uh, and he had just an incredible voice. Um, it was very unique and it, just a gorgeous, gorgeous sound. So that didn't that probably didn't hurt, you know, in terms of uh, drawing me to the instrument. And when, in terms of actually, uh, when the time came, my uh, older brothers had had started in band. At that time, there was there were no elementary music programs. You sort of decided whether you wanted to go into journalism or band. Those are the sort of the, the or yearbook. Those are sort of the three electives in Miami at the time at the junior high level. So my older brother had chosen band. So I, I did the same. And when they brought out the, the, uh, the cards with big pictures of all the different musical instruments and a little record playing probably a horrible version of each, <laughs> each instrument. Um, I saw the bassoon and I said, that's for sure. That's it. It's um, I just thought it looked everything about it just drew me. It was incredible. The, and the sound, you know, I'd already established an affinity for the sound um, and its role in the orchestra. Not that I was thinking about playing orchestrally at 13 years old, but that's basically how it started. I bugged my band director to, to, uh, to take the bassoon, and he said, no, 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 it's too hard. You can't start on bassoon. 
So he gave me a baritone saxophone, which I lugged home across the handlebars of my bicycle for the next three months. Um, and I remember the first, first time I was so happy, I learned how to play a tune on the baritone sax and I played it for my dad. And he said, wow, it's fantastic. Just think of how far you have to go. <laughs> how much room for improvement there was. Oh my God. But I just, I was, I knew that was that from the second I was playing, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy playing the saxophone. It's just that I knew the only reason I was playing the saxophone was because I wasn't allowed to play the bassoon until I had. So finally he said, and I kept bugging him. This, that school started in September and I kept bugging, bugging him. And I said, if I could take it home over, over the Christmas holiday, that would be really, that'd be fantastic. He said, well, you're going to have to go buy a read. So I, I remember getting in the car with my folks going somewhere. I remember being somebody's house. I don't know why. Um, it wouldn't have just been a music store anyway. I bought a read. And uh, they had an old, the Cundi Batoni book, which has, it's got uh, Almond Rider stuff. It's got Milde, the first, you know, book of Milde's in there, and a, and a rudimentary fingering chart, all in German, um, which was super handy, not speaking a word of German. Um, but I just sat down. I remember getting the horn home. And it took me a few, I couldn't really make a sound on it. I did something wrong. I don't know what it was. The, the wing joint, it was two turns so that, you know, things were leaking or what have you. Anyway, I finally figured it out. And I just sat there for probably 12 hours a day, just figuring out. And I just thought it was so fun. Once, it's, once I started to actually be able to make a sound on it, it became more fun. But uh, it was just so fun to figure out um, this amazing puzzle that the bassoon was to me at that point. Um, so I just sat there, and by the time I went back, he said, uh, "Play an F major scale, you know, in front of in front of the band," and it sort of came out. Uh, and I remember thinking, "Oh, that was that was kind of a disaster," and he just couldn't stop raving about, "You see what happens when you work? You can learn, you know, you can do amazing things," and that sort of uh, got me thinking that if I work really hard, even if it's I don't think it's very good. I'm fooling other people into thinking it's, it's okay. So that was, uh, that was encouraging. I think from that moment, I felt like I want to do this. I mean, I'd always been like when I did something, I did it. Like I wanted, I collected snakes as a kid, for instance, and I was going to be a herpetologist. And then I had saltwater aquaria and I was going to be an ichthyologist. You know, I was, you know, I was, that's how I did things. And then when I found the bassoon, just like, yeah, I think I'm going to play the bassoon, you know? And, uh, that's, yeah, that's the start. Sorry, very long-winded version of the, uh, the Genesis story. So after that sweet, sweet lawyer burn from your dad, <laughs> when, when did you just, so you went through junior high and high school, and what led your decisions after that, your educational journey? And let maybe going into your professional journey also. Okay. Um, I think the, the, um, my preliminary enthusiasm for the bassoon was, um, it was sort of confirmed as a, a viable thing to, for me to really pursue. Cause I mean, you know, you, I'm in Miami, there's no, I didn't know any other bassoon players other than, you know, Luciano Manninini and I had, I, I met my first teacher, Mike Finn, um, a little bit later before that. Um, but before that, um, you sort of don't really know how you, whether, you know, how you stack up 
to if you're, if you're thinking ahead and thinking in terms of you're going to make a career of this. Um, and that was, I thought, when I went to, um, I went to Interlochen that first summer after I started playing in December. And uh, I figured that was a, a pretty, it was a pretty competitive environment. There were a lot of terrific players there. And I felt like I could, I could hang with them. And at that point, I felt like, okay, I, I gained confidence that this could be something that I could pursue and it wouldn't be a, a pipe dream. It wouldn't be completely crazy. Um, as far as university, I studied, Mike Finn was a great teacher in Luciano, um, was also amazing. And I went, I went to him after I had a couple of years with Mike. Mike left to go to New York to get his uh, master's at that point. The Philharmonic had gone on strike or been shut, locked out. I don't remember the details, but it was, you know, the writing was on the wall that it was not going to be a, a great place in terms of job security going forward. So Mike went to Juilliard to study with Stephen Maxim to uh, get his, I believe, get his uh, master's degree. And uh, so it came time for me to decide where I was going to study. Uh, and of course, I, I would have, my big hero at the time was Bernard Garfield, but uh, there were no openings at Curtis the year I graduated because uh, Rick Ranney had auditioned the year before and he'd gotten, you know, the one slot that would have been available. So uh, I ended up m talking to Mike about it and he, he said Maxim was just great. Uh, and had been a really amazing teacher for him. And uh, he recommended that I audition there. And of course, my folks were thrilled about, you know, the idea of, you know, the name recognition of Juilliard being able to say, you know, it's almost as good as being able to say, my son, the doctor, my son, the lawyer, my son, <laughs> my son's at Juilliard. <laughs> so that, that uh, you know, all these things conspired to make, you know, and I had absolute trust in Mike's judgment as a musician. He's still one of, one of the best nat natural musicians and smartest guys I know. So anyway, so I studied with, with Steve Maxim for four years and uh, it was, it was great. It was a great fit. It was a great place to be a student. Although, you know, being in New York as an 18 year old has its challenges, but overall it was, it was a, uh, it was the right move. It was the only move I could make as the only other choice at the time for me that made any sense at all would have been going to Curtis. And that uh, wasn't an option. So it was, it was, uh, it was good. Can you talk to us about then embarking on your professional journey and entering the world of orchestral playing? Yeah, of course. I guess I'm, I'm pretty old because I'm going to talk about things that happened back in the day that don't happen anymore, as far as I know, or at least they're very rare. I said it was pretty rare already in, in 1980. After I left Maxim, I wanted to reestablish, because his, his, his whole read concept and everything was, was different. It was different from what I did. It was different from what I wanted to do. So I wanted to go back to Miami and reestablish my connection with my uh, with my origins, I guess, my my uh, the sound concept that Luciano had instilled in me and his read making style and all that. So I moved back home with my parents to study with Luciano. And in the first month I was there, I got a call from uh, from a man named Carlos Piantini, who was the music director of the uh, the National Symphony in the Dominican Republic. And he says, I got your name from Lenny Hendel in the Philharmonic. Um, we need a principal bassoon starting in January. This was in November. Are you interested? And I said, well, let me, um, let me talk to my teacher. Let me think about it. Cause I just moved down there to study with him. And I called up Luciano and, and said, I got this call for a job offer. 
should I take it? He says, do you have another offer? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, then yes, you take it. <laughs> of course you take it. <laughs> so I went to the uh, Dominican Republic and I did uh, just the winter season there um, because it was, I mean, it was a great experience. We were playing. It was a, it was maybe, no, 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 maybe about it. It was definitely the highest quality of life I've ever had in a job. We had rehearsals at five thirty in the evening, <laughs> one day for two and a half hours, one concert a week. The concert was on Saturday. They, they paid for our housing. We lived in a vacation center on the beach. So it was either a great place to get a lot of work done or a great place to get absolutely no work done. Um, and there were a lot of, uh, I remember it was strange at the time, Yugoslavia was still Yugoslavia, so there, there, and there was no relations between the U.S. and Yugoslavia. But there were between the Dominican Republic and Yugoslavia, so there were a lot of Eastern Europeans in the orchestra, so there was a lot of uh, that Central European musical tradition that these guys brought. So the level of the orchestra was, was actually surprisingly good. Of course, they were, you know, big holes. I remember the, uh, <laughs> the principal oboist was the chief of police, as a day job. And he brought, he kept his service revolver under the chair. <laughs> I remember, yeah, that, I remember thinking no one's ever going to question his A. Um, <laughs> but it was all the, all the, the older Eastern Europeans were, were saying to me, look, this is a place you come at the other end of your career. You know, we're really loving it and it's a great place to be, but you need to get out as I was, you know, whatever, whatever I would have been, I guess, 21. So I did just did the winter season. And at that point I had to commit to stay, either staying or going. Uh, and I, I told the music director, I would regretfully have to leave. So I went back um, to Miami, same thing, um, studying with Luciano. And then there was an audition for an, uh, an orchestra, which no longer exists called the uh, South Florida Symphony. And I got that, that job and I was there for uh, a couple of years, maybe. And I, uh, the, orchestra in Tampa called the Florida Gulf Coast Symphony at that point. I, actually, it may have, the name of, may, have, may have already changed to the Florida Orchestra. This is when to get state funding, all the orchestras had to cut the local connotations in their name and put Florida in there somewhere, which I always thought was a horrible idea, but whatever. I don't, it might have been when Nancy Gorris left to start her journey where, to, to Pittsburgh. I don't remember whether, whether she was somewhere else first or she just won other auditions first. And there may have been somebody in between Nancy and this opening, but I remember it was my first audition. I mean, the South Florida Symphony audition was very informal. It was just me and the guy. And he said, okay. So I, I played the audition. And um, after the, the audition I left, it wasn't, it didn't go very well. You know, it, it was, I was at that, it was at the point in my career where I was naive enough that when you get in a, a repertoire list and it says Mozart or another concerto of your choice, you pick another concerto of your choice, never, ever do that. Always play the Mozart. Um, <laughs> inner, um, which is I found really, our quote. <laughs> <laughs> they have. Um, so, but it, it, it's, I, I realized as I was on the stage that I wasn't ready. It, it, it felt like it wasn't going well. And, you know, they came out and said, we're going to pass on, I think I was number five. We're going to pass on, you know, number four, we'll go on. And so as I'm leaving, number four comes running after me and says, oh, Whitney, I've heard, you know, I've, we had mutual friends. I've heard, you know, I've been hearing your name for a long time. So nice to, to meet you. It was David McGill, who um, I'm not saying I would have won the job anyway, but he was, 
he was ready to go, let's say. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he was ready for that job. Um, and he was there for a matter of months before he went to Toronto Symphony. And then I auditioned again. And that, that, that time I was more prepared. I had a better result. Uh, and I was there for six years before I went to Montreal. And that was, uh, I would say that was the, Florida Orchestra was a very, very good orchestra. Like so many regional orchestras, they're, they're worth so much more than what they're getting paid. You know, the level is so high because it's so competitive in the States. There's so few orchestras, you know, relative to, say, Germany, you know, where every town of 100,000 has an orchestra of its own. That's really not the case uh, in the States. It's not as much in our culture, unfortunately. But nevertheless, I, I had a, uh, you know, despite it being a very good orchestra, I still had in my mind that I, I mean, I had to call my, my dad every summer when our paycheck stopped and get loans to get through the summer. Obviously, that wasn't something, I, a way I wanted to spend my life. Um, so when I saw the ad, and I'd take, taken another couple of auditions, I think. Denver, you know, what was Denver at the time? Pittsburgh assistant, a couple of other things which didn't work out. I mean, I saw that, I remember getting the musician, the, uh, the actual paper, the paper paper, not the virtual paper, and uh, seeing the ad for uh, Montreal Symphony and something about that made me say, I have to give everything I have to getting this job. I just thought that would be, you know, I like the idea of Canada. I like the idea of Montreal, this incredible mix of French and English, a very cosmopolitan city. I'd never been there, but I was just fascinated by the idea of it. So um, I practiced like I'd never practiced before, except maybe those first few days when I was really learning the fingerings. You know, probably five, six hour days were very common, I think. And uh, I stumbled on a decent read that, you know, could do everything, which you, it's always my goal for an audition, and it's not always something that happens. And the auditions were all behind a screen, like a few, a few orchestras, I guess, more and more are doing it that way now to make sure there aren't uh, questions about why orchestras are so non-diverse. Uh, but they'd always done it that way in Montreal. Uh, anyway, it went well, and uh, I got that job. And that was really the start of the, you know, that was arguably the, the Montreal Symphony of that era, which was the early 90s, was, I'd say at that time, it was definitely one of the best orchestras in the world. Because Dutois really, you know, a lot has come to light about Dutois and his uh, personality flaws. Um, but he really knew how to create a great orchestral sound. He demanded that you come into that first rehearsal knowing exactly where your part fits. You better be able to play all the notes. And there was no, you know, it was really a wake-up call, you know, and it was, it, was, it was no problem for me because I was on probation. I wasn't going to come in unprepared because I really wanted that job. At that point, you're typically putting so much pressure on yourself to make sure that you, there's no doubt, you know, I didn't want it. It was unacceptable to me that there would ever be a question about successfully passing the uh, probationary period. Overall, I, I think back on those days as, as uh, some of the most satisfying musical experiences of my life. So six years go by. And uh, uh, there was an audition for the Met, which was advertised, which I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for this. I mean, you were seeing references to the Met Orchestra and James Levine in like popular culture. Like we were, there was a show on Thursday nights at the time. I don't remember the name of it, Mad About You, maybe? It was on the, after the Friends, that whole lineup. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. But uh, there was an actual reference to 
James Levine and that orchestra in this, in this TV show, which, which was, uh, and I had already started the preparation process. It was really, I mean, they were just, they were the, the level of that orchestra was amazing at that point. And anyway, I auditioned for that. That was also behind the screen. And that was a completely different, uh, process because I, I wasn't preparing. I wasn't preparing the same stuff I've been practicing on since I was in high school. You know, it was Manon Lascaux and Cosi Fantute and, and uh, Lohengrin, all these things that maybe I'd come across a couple of them. And I was lucky because in Florida we played, uh, at the time, the Florida Orchestra was the pit band for the Sarasota Opera. So we played four or five operas a year. So I wasn't completely unfamiliar with, uh, with the repertoire. Um, but it was still a ton of that audition list was completely new to me. So anyway, there was, there was, uh, there was plenty to work on, <laughs> which was good. Um, and I was really motivated to, uh, to make a change at, at that point. It was just really, uh, really appealing option. And, you know, my wife was from Montreal originally, so that was a great place to be. And she's a, she's a great contra player. She was playing with the orchestra, um, full time at the time, but she understood. And, uh, New York was always uh, our favorite place to go from, it was just a five hour drive from, from Montreal. So she was, she was okay with that move. So I, I went for it and I got it. And that was uh, incredible, an incredible uh, 12 years that I spent there. That was, that it was, um, it was a great, great job. Well, it was a great, great orchestra and kind of a horrible job because it really didn't um one of the questions you sent was talked about work-life balance mm -hmm. talk about um not being able to have any work-life balance whatsoever i mean mm -hmm. the the schedule was was just uh punishing but you know when we got there we didn't have any kids it was a dream we uh we lived in manhattan we walked to work play all day and all night study when i wasn't rehearsing or performing, you get you play the show, you're done at midnight, you get home at 1230, we'd order some amazing takeout and roll out of bed at 10 o'clock the next morning for an 11 o'clock rehearsal. And wow. My wife is very independent. It was, she was having a great time. Um, and it was wonderful. It was really, it was really a halcyon days. You know, I was learning a ton and it was just, it was great. Um, but then we had kids and it started to be, and there are, there are colleagues there that do this and there, I don't want to say it can't be done because I've had colleagues that were great players and did a great job being there for their families, but maybe they needed less sleep than I did, or they're just uh, born under a different star. I don't know. But for me, it was uh, not really sustainable in terms of having a family and doing that job. I thought maybe, okay, bassoon is also very labor intensive. You know, we know that it's, it's, uh, it takes a lot of time. You have to practice a lot. You have to make, spend a lot of time on reads. So for me, it wasn't, uh, I mean, I could have managed if I'd had to, but, uh, after 12 years, the, uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic was having an audition. And, uh, I remember I got a call from the personnel manager and it was about, it was a re in reference to a student of mine, an ex student of mine who was auditioning. Um, I said, yeah, he's terrific. Uh, you know, whatever. I, I forget the, the questions exactly that he was asking. Um, at the end of the conversation, he said, would you have any interest in this job? And I said, I don't know. I thought about it for a little bit. Uh, and I called him back and I said, yeah, maybe I, maybe I would. 
maybe I would, maybe it's time to consider a change that would make my life a little, you know, allow for the possibility of a little better work-life balance. So at that point, they, uh, in the Los Angeles Philharmonic contract, if, if uh, a nationally advertised audition is unsuccessful, at their discretion, they can start a different kind of process where they invite people to play with the orchestra, um, at which point they also have to play a mini recital and play excerpts um, with the orchestra. So I, I did that. I did it. Uh, I actually did it twice. I did it once. Um, and Essa Pekka was already had already resigned, and Gustavo had been Gustavo Dugamel had been named uh, the incoming music director. But for some reason, they scheduled me to go play this week when Essa Pekka was conducting. And I asked him why am why am I playing for Essa Pekka? He's leaving. Does he really have the, uh, you know, is he going to really hire the uh, the successor to David Ridenthal, who was a fabulous, you know, had a tremendous and a tremendously long career in the LA Phil. And the personnel manager told me that Gustavo has complete confidence in Esapeca to make this choice. I said, okay, I'll, uh, so I went and I played. It was okay. It wasn't great um, in terms of my performance. It's just, it'd been a long time. It's one thing about playing opera a little bit of it or a fair amount of it is great. But if it's all you do basically for 12 seasons, there really is a, a relearning curve. I mean, at this point I'd already had, I'd had six years in Montreal. I'd had six years in Florida, you know, a year and, and a couple of years of orchestral playing before that. So I was very experienced as an orchestral symphon- symphonic orchestral player. But when you, we did very little of it at the Met. It was like one or two Carnegie concerts a year and you know, whatever summer, summer festival playing I did. But to do it when you're on stage again, that there actually is, believe it or not, um, a little bit of a, hmm, to get back into your comfort zone takes a minute. Um, so it, it was, I was feeling that very much in, in that audition week with Esapeka. It went okay. I was approved by the committee, but he declined to make the hire saying, um, Oh, there was still one more person actually that they were interested in hearing. So there was that. And there was also, it just, it seemed to make sense to me that wait until Gustavo can make, pick his principal bassoon. So um, I had been, you know, uh, as they, as they say, qualified by the committee, which meant I was still alive in some sort of limbo. So a few months later when Gustavo started, uh, I went and did the same thing with him there. This went much better. I was much more comfortable, but anyway, it went, it went better. And, uh, I, uh, I, I got the job. I was selected for the job and, and have been there for the last 10 years. So that is the whole of my, uh, odyssey, my professional odyssey. We have a really great listener question um, from Isan. How do you prepare for an important solo and how do you discuss your interpretation with the conductor? And how do you adapt to do different interpretations from different conductors? Mm, a very good question. Basically, I might be a horrible person to ask this of because I, when I'm preparing Mm, let's say Shostakovich 9, the solo from Shostakovich 9. Um, I do it very much in a vacuum. If, if I am in a vacuum, that is, if, if, okay, search YouTube, 
search the web, if you can find a version of this conductor's performance of this piece, listen to it. Maybe Shostakovich is a bad example because that's so personal. A lot of even the most um, picky conductors will oftentimes just let the bassoonist go. But if it's a more uh, structured solo like uh, Tchaikovsky 4 or Scheherazade, find out what the conductor is doing so you can get comfortable with something that's close to that, you know. But um, failing that, if I'm in a vacuum, I absolutely have to prepare it in a way that convinces me. I don't care about anybody else because this is, you know, I have to make it meaningful to me. I have to make it make sense to me. This is the way that I'm going to get the best result, generally speaking. And in terms of discussing it with conductors, I don't. I play what I play with full confidence that that's um, the way it should go. And if he's got a different opinion, then that's what the rehearsal process is for. And, you know, there's always time after the first rehearsal, if you're well prepared, to tweak some things to, you know, if he wants it bent in a different way, if he wants a breath in a different place, something like this, you know, if he wants more vibrato, less vibrato, you can adjust these things. But um, I, uh, I will never ask a conductor about a solo in advance. I don't want to give him the impression that I'm particularly interested in his input. If, you know, of course, if we're talking about a great maestro coming. Um, I'm very welcome, of course, you have to be, to uh, his suggestions and adjusting my point of view. And, and I've learned about, you know, for instance, Shostakovich and I, and I have a very, I played it many times, uh, I recorded it with Montreal Symphony with Dutois. Apparently he liked the way I did it because he never said anything ever about it. But subsequent to that, I played it with other people who had comments. And even though I played it probably 20 times, uh, in the Montreal Symphony alone, uh, I considered their comments and it, it made sense. So I cha I've changed some things over the years because of feedback from conductors. So you, you can, it's important to remember that you can learn from anybody. Um, but I think to, to uh, it can be looking for trouble to seek them out and say, well, what do you think about, you know, this? I don't, I don't like to do that. I like to establish that we're colleagues it's my job to realize his vision, but oftentimes the best way I can realize his vision is to do a committed version of my vision. I love that. What would the intersection of that look like in terms of audition preparation? I guess your experience and then also your advice for people listening who are preparing auditions, because it seems like you would have to find that balance between meeting expectations and exhibiting you know, individual I guess, confidence or competency. So what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. You can't, you can't now, an audition is one thing, you, you just can't prepare it in a, in, a, in a vacuum. You have to study, you have to listen to versions, you have to see what the traditions are. You know, um, you have to find your, your favorite players, you know, and generally, most of the times, the bassoonists that you respect their music making and you enjoy and appreciate their voice. These are the ones that are going to speak the most to you. See what they do it because they've, you know, especially like in, in my case, growing up, it was always Garfield. You know, that's who I that's who I studied. I didn't study with him, but I studied him. Um, mm -hmm. And I figured if he's doing it a certain way, um, 
he's worked with a lot of great conductors. He's done it at the highest level. Chances are this isn't a crazy interpretation, you know, and the same goes for, I mean, the younger generation. I feel similarly about Gustavo Nunez. I mean, he's worked with great conductors. He's, he's, we have a real affinity. Um, I have a real affinity for his style of playing his, the, how personal it, how personal it is. And yet how it's never like you're, you can tell it's Gustavo, but you're never hearing Gustavo. You're always hearing Gustavo playing Beethoven. And it was the same with Garfield. The, 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 and there's been others. Um, those are the two that pop to mind as having this, the, I have the, the strongest uh, affinity for, but they, but they, they have a knack for being personal and yet not making it um, about them overly individualistic. This is super, super important uh, in audition preparation, particularly because there is, I mean, I'd like to say, just commit to a version and just go do your thing. There's a caveat there. It has to be, it has to fall your version of these uh, solely has to fall with in a range of expectations of traditions, things you can't reinvent the wheel. You can't go in and, and play the second moment solo on Tchaikovsky for as if it's a cadenza, you have to respect, you have to res respect the phrasing, which if, there's a, there's a lot of information in that solo, as you guys know. Um, the slurs, the staccati, the, you know, what, what do I, how much do I do? Well, that, this is, I mean, you have to make your own decisions. You have to come to your own conclusions, but you also have to do a lot of research and see how, how do people play it? How much time is typically taken? I don't believe that in a solo like that, where there is some intrinsic uh, freedom, it's not, it's not a cadenza, but it can ease up. It can relax in the, in the, after the A where typically a lot of people breathe. Some don't, but it's a natural place for that to happen if you feel like you want or need to take a breath. I don't believe that it's important to be metronomic in an audition during solely that aren't performed that way. Don't worry that they're going to, oh, they're going to, they're going to think my rhythm is unstable. No. Bolero is where they're going to think your rhythm is unstable. You have to, you have to play that boom with, with that. That has to be going ahead, right? Or whatever subdivision helps you. I've actually found that to think of the drum part not particularly helpful. I, I still get off. Um, I think just to, when I think eighth notes, that, that, that works better for me. Anyway, um, I think it's, it's important to bring the appropriate level of freeness to the solely that demand that. So it's kind of, yeah, there's a, there's, don't be afraid to show your impression of what that is on a, on a personal level, but also you have to demonstrate that you understand the traditions uh, that are sort of have become culturally acceptable and there, and there's a range, but it's not that huge. Generally speaking, if you listen to 20 recordings of, of Tchaikovsky before you're going to, you're going to know what the, what the outliers are and they, and typically they aren't that far from the ones that are, you know, right down the middle. And that's, I felt like that sort of worked for me. I don't, I don't give people the advice to be safe. And I think that's a bad idea. You don't want to, dynamically speaking, you don't want to push your sound to the point where it's spreading, but you want to try and demonstrate a big dynamic range. Um, and generally I, I, I feel like uh, if you're comfortable in the softer dynamic range, if you have to make a choice, you're better off 
focusing on that because I've, I've observed as a, as a listener on uh, audition panels that people tend to sound loud. Like you're typically in a resonant room, maybe alone on a stage. It kind of, it, there's a natural amplification that happens. So you tend to sound full anyway. It's, it's rare that I've listened to bassoon auditions and the criticism, I've, I've never heard a criticism like, this is a beautiful player, uh, too small. It's really small. It's a small sound. I've, I've actually never heard that. If someone is beautiful and they're small, they will definitely be advanced because you, that's something that, and I think rightly so, because that, that's something that can evolve your, the size of your sound. I, um, I think somebody who plays big and out of control and veers into the unfocused or the spread, that is more often than not, I would say, going to be a, a deal breaker for um, certainly for me and prop in my experience for audition committees. What are some keys to being a great principal bassoonist? Ah, um, I don't know if I am a great principal bassoonist. I think um, what I try to do is not say too much. It's your right, uh, even your responsibility, to try and bring things together with your section, with other sections too, but I mean, I speak specifically in terms of the bassoon section now. But it's, you also have to be sensitive to becoming a pain in the neck for your colleagues. Um, and you got to sit with these people many, many, many hours a week and sometimes for many, many years. So you really, I usually, my rule of thumb is I allow myself to say one thing a day. And once I've, when I've said something, if I feel something else, I may be making mental, men, mental note of it. And if it's a problem next time, I'll comment on it. But I don't, I try not, I've, in the past I would be like, we could, we, we could be a little, uh, we could be a little earlier here. Uh, could we do a little shorter here? Uh, this, could this be a little lower? Listen to a little higher, you know, and it just, it, uh, you know, you see, you see the eyes, you feel the eye, you can hear actually the eyes start to roll a little bit when, you, when you're laying it on too thick. So I think it's um, paying attention. It is your responsibility to try and make it better if you hear things that are not um, going well or not perfectly matching what's going on around you or, Maybe, maybe they didn't hear what the conductor asked or they, they think they're doing it and your impression of whether they're doing it or not is different from theirs. It's your ob obligation to, to say something, but you just have to be very judicious about how you do it and when you do it to avoid being, um, you know, a nuisance. Is your advice the same for marriage? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I, I may not be a great principal bassoonist, but I'm a much better principal bassoonist than I'm a husband. <laughs> I'm not sure you want to be seeking. You want to be you seeking get one thing every day. That's it. Choose That's too much. Change it to one a month, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually not be bad advice to bring That's into a marriage. Bad. No, no matter bad. what you think, just say one. One, one you'll probably get away with. <laughs> More than that. Mm. Make a mental note. If it happens, note. it's still a problem. <laughs> I have a two-part question about memories that you've had over the course of your career. 
Uh, we love to ask our guests for a favorite, something that maybe sticks out for being like an accomplishment or sentimental memory. And then we also like to ask, uh, because we interview very esteemed, accomplished people, and we need to feel better about ourselves, an embarrassing <laughs> memory as well. So, <laughs> Okay. Um, let me see. This is... Uh... This is hard. I've been, I've been, uh, I've been thinking about this, and there, there, I can't, I can't really think of a moment where I felt like, wow, what an individual triumph this was. <laughs> that was so. I was so amazing. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 I tried to come up with one, and I, I, I couldn't. The, the ones that stick with me, and I, I, there are several. There are many, actually. There, there are performances where you felt like you were part of, of a great team. And that's really the, I think that's really the magic and the beauty of orchestral playing. And of course, in opera, the team becomes even larger. And I, I remember the, there's a, uh, a production of Marriage of Figaro uh, very near the start of my tenure at the Met. And I remember it was a perfect cast. And, you know, opera is super hard because it's, it's so big, you know, and so many things can go wrong. And most of them, I mean, the best case, the stories are a little silly and a little hard to follow. In the worst case, they're completely incomprehensible, like trovatore, which makes no sense on any level. So that, I mean, that's challenging to pull that off. And then you've got to assemble a cast of generational singers for, for some of these things. And then you have to have, you have to have a, a set that works that's convincing so that the audience can suspend disbelief. And then you have to have, finally, the music has to be great. The orchestra has to be great. And the Met is one of the few places in the world where these things can happen, even on a regular basis. And even at the Met, it's not that regular, but it does happen. And I remember this production, I don't remember everybody, but Renee Fleming was the Countess. Um, Perucho Furlaneto was, was Figaro. Bryn Terfel was that, I mean, it was just like top to bottom. Uh, and I remember feeling when that show was over that that was as close to a perfect musical moment as you could have. I would say, and you know, that many performances with the, uh, the Montreal Symphony, I mean, Dutrois was, I think, a genius of programming. And he, uh, we take uh, performances on tour that would just, you felt the goosebumps from the audience members. I mean, it was such an exciting orchestra. It was such an exciting time. And he always picked repertoire that was correct for us. It was stuff that we played, you know, the pants off of. And there, there were many exciting, you know, performances on the road um, with him. So they're, they're the, uh, those moments are the ones that really stick with me. Those, those performances, there's, there's been a lot of great performances, but, but I still remember those, those, the ones at the Met that were spectacular. That was, I will say, I've never cried on stage during a uh, symphonic concert. At the Met, it happened all the time. It was, an, it was, it was a real nuisance. I remember when, when, uh, when, my, when my colleague was, uh, Ricardo Morales is now principal clarinet uh, in the Philadelphia Orchestra. 
he's, you know, he's, his heart's very close to the surface and he was a very emotional guy, a fiery guy, wonderful colleague, wonderful player, but he would get going and then I'd get going and come, it's like, come on, man, we got to play, we got to play here. <laughs> and that's, but that was, I mean, but in retrospect, what a gift, you know, to be so deeply, genuinely moved that you're sitting there in the dark with tears running down your face. You Sharing know, a box of tissues. <laughs> <laughs> it was very sweet. <laughs> but as far as, as far as uh, embarrassing moments, I mean, I'm sure there've been so many, but I, I just, I just, I, I guess I blocked them out. I mean, I don't, I mean, <laughs> I heard a story once about uh, John Miller told me a story of him thinking he was blowing out his vocal, but his reed was on. <laughs> Oops. That's, yeah, that's, I remember. I, 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 I haven't, I haven't had anything uh, quite that, that fun. Um, or that, that uh, interesting as the story happened. I mean, of, of course, there's, you know, many, many concerts that haven't gone well because we're human and God help us, we play a reed instrument, you know. <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have anything specific to point to that, that, would be a, that would be a great story to tell. That's all right. We'll forgive you this time. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> What's your advice to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Uh, two things mainly, I would say, listen, you know, these days it's so easy to find everybody's version of everything. Find, you know, scour the web anytime you've, you've come to find out, you know, as a young musician that, um, Tchaikovsky five, oh, there's, there's a lot for the bassoon in that piece. When you become aware of that get on YouTube, you know, listen to the great players, the ones, listen to everybody, decide for yourself who the great players are. And, um, and just learn what's going on around these solos, learn what the contexts are. That's one thing. Um, because I mean, sometimes I speak to, uh, I meet these young, young bassoonists and I'll refer to, you know, Garfield's Scheherazade or Garfield's Bolero or Gustavo's Beethoven Six, and they, they don't know what I'm talking about. And to me, that's unforgivable because it's free. You know, mm -hmm. everyone has a computer, everyone has internet or phone, God help you, whatever, if you have to, at least with headphones, hopefully. <laughs> but um, so learn, don't, don't let yourself um, appear ignorant. If you're, you know, if you're excited about pursuing this thing, which and anybody who just, you know, wants to do a little bit because they're interested in it and decides to go another way professionally. I mean, no one's going to be upset about that. There's no, you know, there's no, uh, there's not a critical shortage of bassoonists and oboists in the world. We don't need to, we don't need to be too sad when people decide to pursue other interests. But, <laughs> but if you're going after it, you, you can't be ignorant to the ones that have done it at a super high level before. And the other thing is just, it's simple. You, you, you have to practice a lot and it's, it sounds that that might be simplistic. You have to practice calmly uh, as if you aren't in a hurry, because if you practice as if you're in a hurry, um, you can get into a lot of bad habits. I'm speaking from definitely from experience here. I'm not, not coming down off the mountain uh, because I just practiced so much without regard for breaks or how I was doing things. I just 
wanting to make them happen. So you can end up with bad habits like mouthing or, you know, soft palate leaks, things like this, which all of which I've had and, you know, addressed at various points in my career. But just devoting the time to it, um, it's, there's no, there's just no substitute for it. And everyone knows that and very few people actually do it. If you hear great, great players, they will, I will say without exception, have put in the time necessary to master the instrument. And uh, yeah, I know it's not so helpful practice a lot. I mean, you know, you can read that on any restroom wall, <laughs> maybe not any restroom wall, but you know what I mean? It's, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a brilliant insight, but it can't be emphasized enough. It, there's, there's no substitute for it. You just practice, practice and learn what, uh, you know, the whole context of these, of everything you're working on. And I think the, the, the most, I, I would say the biggest um, jump in the level of my playing happened when I started doing long tones rigorously. It was, uh, you know, it's, they're not, I mean, they're all the way from the Kovar book published in what, the 50s, um, to Ben Kamen's recommendation from, from Hertzberg. And I, I think they all had their origin with Kovar. But some version of, of, uh, of a long tone exercise, I just do one, one octave a day because you don't want to take up your whole practice day. Plus, they're, I mean, they're tedious. Um, but they're necessary. For me, they were necessary. Um, I would, I would say that's a, a key part of practicing. I, I remember having a distinct impression. It was, I think it was when I was preparing the Montreal edition, no matter how impatient I was to get to the excerpts and, and to get, get them working better. I resolved that I was going to start every practice session every day. I should say not every practice session. There were usually multiple practice sessions, but at least once a day. I would do this long tone routine I had. Um, and I remember thinking that my growth during that audition preparation period was really a pretty much straight line. Whereas I'd always felt like I'd, before I'd have good days, then I'd have a bad day, then I'd have good days. And maybe I'm sure there was progress because I'm practicing a lot. But somehow those long tones really cemented, it grounded me. Uh, and it, it just changed the, the trajectory of my improvement a lot and it just it gave me the confidence to know i was going to be able to make this pianissimo attack at the moment that it was called for as i crescendoed the pitch wasn't going to go haywire and as a diminuendoed the same you know i knew to have that um to have confidence in that is incredibly important um so i would i think that's critical for anybody um for that to be a big part of your, you know, and it maybe doesn't have to continue your whole career. Maybe there's a point at which it's not the best thing for you, but I think um, there is a stage where everybody would benefit from religious long-term practice. Whitney, thank you so much for talking with us today. This was such a refreshing and invigorating and inspiring conversation and we could, I could talk to you for three more hours. Thank you so much. It's just a lot of fun. Thank you. It was fun. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We 
Hope you enjoyed that interview with Whitney Crockett. Thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can listen to us anywhere that you get your podcasts and on YouTube. And we would love it if you left us a comment, rating, or review. Galit, who's coming up on our next episode? We have coming up a wonderful interview with Jim Ryan, professor of oboe at the University of North Texas School of Music. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads, and you should actually make those reads and not (laughs) avoid it, because there's nothing, yeah, immediately in your future where you have to have them, so you're getting by on the old, don't do that. And, like, don't waste all your time making terrible reads. That is also important. Yeah, that's the new tagline. (laughs) Ha <laughs>